Yeah, my office I mean, was below, below your office. office. I believe yes. that was the early 2000s. Early 2000s. My, maybe even 1999. It could have been. It could mm -hmm. have been easily. It was, yeah. Yes, it had to be because it was before 9-11 mm -hmm. for sure, and that was 2001. Definitely. Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. Man, so you were there. How long did you stay in that, in that place? How long? I was there? around that neighborhood in Ebisu for close to 15 years. 15 years? Yes. It wow. was a very convenient neighborhood. Tell as me about you know. it. Tell me yeah. about it. Because you yourself, how long were you there before I even showed up? I don't know because I came there, let me see, because I had my first son there and that was in 86. Mm -hmm. So I had to be there since 85. Oh, wow. I was there since 85 because Lance was born in 86. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, mm -hmm. where were you born? I was born in Dallas, Texas. You're a Texas guy. Yeah. I think you told, I know I've asked you all this before mm -hmm. because we set up an office. We had to have talked. Yes. And we went through everything. But you were, you're from Dallas, Texas. Yes. And so a family of six. Okay. So uh, four brothers. All right. Uh, my father was from Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. And my mother was from Jefferson, Texas. Right. Are they both still okay? Uh, they both passed. Okay. Or transitioned. And so uh, my father... He was born in the 1920s and my mother born in the 1940s. And so they were part of that wave of Americans that were transitioning from farm life to city life, actually. Right, right, I mean, right. there was a big, it was, it was a big kind of wave or generational kind of movement right, way back right. then. Well, tell me this. How many in your family, where do you rank? Where are you? Number I'm number two? three. Number three. So who's above you? Uh, my two older brothers and uh, one younger brother. One younger brother. Mm -hmm. So there's four. I thought there's more yeah, than four. So four brothers, four but brothers. including my father and mother, you know, six. Oh, that's how yeah. you did six. Okay, yeah. just like in my family, because I mm -hmm. have four sons. So you have no sisters. No sisters. Just so four. So you're number three. Number three. That's usually the quietest one. Let me see. Because what happens is, wait, how many is between the oldest and the youngest? Only, uh, I mean, two. And so it was almost perfect. No, no, perfect no, no. Time. Between the oldest, your oldest. Yes. Yeah, so two, two, two. So all the way, what, eight years? Eight years, so they took mm -hmm. eight years. To, they took eight years for four kids, because mm -hmm. we took six years for four. Mm -hmm. Six years. The reason why I'm saying that, I'm asking that because the more space, depending on how your family is raised, how close are you guys? All really close? We're all fairly close. Yes. You are? Mm -hmm. are you the only one that left? Uh, no, everyone basically left. My older brother, he went into the military. Uh, my second uh, oldest brother, regrettably, he passed uh, in his twenties. Okay. And uh, but then I also I came to Japan. My youngest brother, he wound up staying in Dallas. Okay, so he's the only one that stayed out of the whole in the, of all your brothers. Yes. All right, so he's still there. Do you guys communicate regularly or anything? Oh uh, yes. And so uh, while my mom was alive, of course, as the matriarch of the family, she was the, uh, she only passed last year. Thankfully, okay. it wasn't re uh, corona related. Mm -hmm. But as the matriarch of the family and one of uh, the elder sisters, it was, she was one of the youngest sisters in her family. Right. But uh, she was still one of the older matriarchs that was still with us. 
And so she was always organizing the family reunions in East Texas, but she was also the linchpin of our communications as a family itself. Okay, okay. When did your father pass, right? Uh, before I came to Japan, even. Really? Yes. Well, how, long so, have you like, been, how long have you been in Japan? I've been in Japan um, probably close to 25 years now. Okay, all right, mm -hmm. all right. So more than half your life. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> half your life. Somewhere. Yeah, it's around somewhere there. around somewhere there. Around there. Okay, okay, all right. Yes. So so he passed before you came? Uh yes. How old were you when he passed? And so I was um it was really basically I was in college. Mm -hmm. And so being in college and um I was going to the University of Texas at Austin and it was one of those things, of course, his health was something, it was chronic illness as opposed to say a sudden type of thing. And so it's the type of thing that you, you it's not unexpected mm -hmm. is how you would say it. It's always unexpected when it does happen, but the, overarch the overriding arc of it all uh, was not unexpected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So tell me, what made you, or tell me about your childhood when you grew up. You spent all of your life in Texas until you came to Japan? Uh, the first time I jumped on an airplane was when I came to Japan. Okay, so how old were you when you did that? How old were you when you left Texas? And so that would have been the first time I came to Japan was as an exchange student. Okay. And so I was at the University of Texas. Right. And I believe that that was around the third year, so uh, the, what, junior year. Right. And um, came to Japan and I went, wound up going on an exchange program in Chiba Prefecture to a school, uh, International Budo University, and so it was a martial arts university. Even though I really didn't have an interest in martial arts or anything, I was more interested in Japan, the culture, the language. Mm -hmm. What do you think started that interest? What, what got you interested in the first place? Uh, the requirement to take a foreign language in middle school. Period. <laughs> Period. And so, so when you in, <laughs> so that's junior high, basically. So when you're basically. in junior high, mm -hmm. 12, 13 years old, mm -hmm. you said, I'm going to pick Japanese. Well, there was an option of speaking uh, French, German, Spanish, mm -hmm. and at that time Texas was not really that progressive, so mm -hmm. Spanish was the same as French and German, mm -hmm. which I both, which I knew I would never speak in my life. And then mm -hmm. there was, it wasn't even a proper elective, it mm -hmm. was an optional elective that they kind of put on the books. Right. And they said, well, you can also start taking Japanese and yeah, we'll count it as the same. Like, okay, well, that's another language that I'll never speak, so I'll take that one. Okay, all right. So and then, it's something as simple as that. So then, what, what, okay, then from, that, from doing that, you stayed in that for how long? Um, well, that's the interesting part. Okay. It was a requirement, but that was not my main interest. My main interest growing up was arts. Okay. And so my middle school was an arts and science uh, magnet. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went to um, high school, I wound up going to Booker T. Washington, which is the arts magnet in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. And from there, I transferred to an arts and science academy at the University of North Texas. Mm -hmm. And so the trajectory kind of went from arts to math. But during that time, the language that I was taking was always Japanese. Okay. Mm -hmm. The whole time? Yes. All right. So then, so when did you feel like you said, okay, this is kind of interesting? Was there a moment like that that happened? No, I was basically there? recruited to come to Japan. They had an open slot, and no one was going was interested. In no one was this. This was this was in the uh, University of when I was at the University of Texas. Okay, but you'd been you'd kept from middle school up until you got to the university. You were still taking Japanese. I was still taking Japanese. Because the, some credits would transfer, some credits would not transfer. You always need, there was always a foreign language requirement. Okay. 
And after a while, it was just uh, easy enough to keep that as the elective. So there's always a foreign language requirement, always the elective requirement. Well, how were you doing in the class? Hmm? I mean, how were you doing in the class? Were you getting C's? Were you getting D's? Were you getting A's? No, B's? it was, uh, I guess I was an average student. It was B's, A's, and it would totally depend on the context. Some things, history mm-hmm. um, was not taught that well, is, mm-hmm. is probably one of the ways I, I would say it. The cultural, modern culture was very interesting. The historical parts of Jap- Japan at that point, because still there was no point of context. Uh, you weren't really talking to anyone it. that spoke Japanese. You never had any friends who were Japanese. Or uh, there like were, once you, um, so the University of Texas in Austin, there was a, a pretty notable Japanese exchange population. Mm-hmm. And so there would be Japanese students there, but the, the reason that they are there is to immerse themselves in American culture. And so you don't, quote unquote, get exposed to a lot of Japanese culture. They're not really bringing that there with them. It's different when you find Americans abroad Mm -hmm. and there is this whole aura of Americanness that comes with it. So so what you're saying is basically they wanted to speak more English. They didn't care about speaking Japanese. So you didn't have an opportunity to really speak Japanese to them. it, it was it was a little bit of both because in terms of fluency, mm-hmm. you're still Japanese is a very complex language as we all know, and especially when you get into the formal situations. But even in the casual situations, just like speaking American slang, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even as we become older, generationally there is still slang that we will use, but it's very hard to master if you're coming from the inside out. Okay, okay. And, and so until I actually spent a year abroad at the university here in Japan, um, I wasn't really able to communicate with a lot of the nuance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's really required to kind of just fit in. Had you ever tried to? I mean, did you ever think, I'm gonna to try to get a Japanese friend or see if oh, I can there, communicate There were many Japanese them? friends that uh, I had at, at okay, UT okay. Austin. Okay. I mean, the community was there. Right. But uh, the question was about whether or not um, you're able to really sync mm-hmm. in, in just the native language fluently. Mm-hmm. No, not really. Okay, so you yeah. didn't really have too many people like that. Okay, mm-hmm. so then you come over here as you're being recruited. So you're recruited to come to Japan. Mm-hmm. Once you came here, what was your experience like here? What did you think of Japan? First time getting on the plane, leaving Texas. Mm-hmm. You come to this country. You come on the other side of the planet, actually. You come across the other side of the planet. What was your experience? What was it like? Oh, I remember distinctly when I landed at Narita that it was very green, and I remember the smell um, mm-hmm. because the the semi Japan is not really a tropical type of uh, environment, and, mm-hmm. and Narita Airport is in Chiba Prefecture in Tokyo, and uh, but it's very green because of the types the weather and the weather cycles and patterns, the typhoons, the monsoons. Uh, it's easy to to kind of. Once you've been in Tokyo for a while, you kind of forget how much greenery is around mm-hmm. in, in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Even in Dallas, um, I mean, growing up in Dallas, yes, we had forests and whatnot, but Dallas, we didn't have rainfall mm-hmm. the same way. And so that change in the environment was one thing that I remember. I do remember distinctly the smell of the greenery. Mm-hmm. And it, it's different from the forests uh, that we would have, the parks and forests we would have when I was growing up in Dallas, or even the countryside in Jefferson, Texas, or when we'd visit um, mm-hmm. Arkansas. And so that was one of the first things that I distinctly remember. Mm-hmm. The other thing was uh, coming to Japan, and so this was in the early 1990s, and so there were no sushi, sashimi restaurants in the States. Uh, it was my first time to eat sushi and sashimi, and it was a unique experience. The preconceptions 
And one of the things that I think is uh, very good um, with my personality, with my upbringing, is that we, for the most part, n not too many preconceptions of how things should be. Okay. And so when I showed up and people say, oh, this is what we eat in Japan, okay, let's go for it. All right. And uh, it was great. Uh, and so I enjoyed the life as an exchange student um, mm -hmm. for one year. And I learned a lot about the subtleties and how do you say, every, every person who goes abroad to any country, there's always, no matter how much you prepare yourself, unwritten rules and unexpected situations which help you learn those rules. Mm -hmm. And so the first year here in Japan was really about that. And I found that incredibly beneficial. Okay, okay. Mm. So what were some of the rules that you learned that were really beneficial that you said, wow, that's interesting? Well, it's the context of, for example, one of the things that people say about Japanese society is that the senpai kohai uh, system is um, really complex and really hard to understand. It is not. When I was in Japan the first time and I was in the clubs and the university and I was uh, interacting with other people in the city, uh, there was a family, there wasn't a host family uh, program, but there was basically a family that kind of took me in mm -hmm. and showed me around. And I understood one thing intrinsically. Uh, maybe it was because of um, it, the place I was in was the countryside. It was Katsura, Chiba. And also maybe it's the fact that my uh, parents basically came from the countryside. The senpai kohai system in Japan can be summed up with one, one rule. And anybody from the country understands this. Keep your mouth shut when grown folk are talking. Okay. And that, that, is, the, that is the essence of the Japan senpai kohai system. And it, it extrapolates from the student groups and clubs that you were in, the senpai, who, who were the grown folk, the senpai. And that's it. And mm -hmm. when you wind up working in Japanese society, even when I transitioned, so I did the exchange program, I went back to the States, I graduated, then I came back. And once I started working in a Japanese environment, it was the same thing. Right. And there might be some of the grand, some of the uh, grown folk that you do not like, right. but the rule you, is still the same. That's interesting. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. That is, that makes so much sense. Yeah, you remember the grandmother. I never, I you never remember thought the about that. There was always the sweet grandmother sure and then the mean grandmother. But you knew to keep your mouth <laughs> shut when the grown folk are talking. That is, that is, that sums up Japan. Wow. <laughs> I never thought of that. That makes that really makes sense. And, and, and I think that's it comes good. from it's so good. It's about the human element that is universal. That's and right. If yeah. you're in a country, that's the way it works. <laughs> that is the way it works. We're going, folks are talking. That is. But what about okay? What about be seen but not? That's the same thing. Be seen and not heard. It's the same thing. That's the same doggone thing. That's mm. interesting. I had never thought of that. That's a really simple way. It's good. And you came up with that when you first got here in Chiba. Yes. It, 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 so your parents taught you well, or, or grandparents. Your grandparents. Or grandparents. You remember your grandparents well too? Uh, yes, and so okay. uh, that whole phrase, you were raised, uh, it, it takes a community to raise a child. Right, right, okay. It is one of those things, and so as I was saying, um, there was a wave of people in my parents' generation that were moving to the cities, right. and so there were still these country kinfolk right, right. Uh, networks that were a key part in some of the cities, and probably 
it, this was more notable in the South because of the agrarian culture and the roots that people would have. And so when the migration was made, migration or transition was made to the larger cities, mm -hmm. a lot of your kinfolk would go with you. Right. Uh, my father's family from Arkansas, a lot of people went to, say, California. And, but my mother's side of the family, most people stayed within Texas. And for, so from East Texas to kind of Central Texas, that's what Dallas and Fort Worth really are, mm -hmm. North Central Texas. And uh, so that was really the transition right, right there. So you had more people on your mother's side that you were, her grand, your grandparents on her side, mm -hmm. who were more like guiding you and, and, and teaching the ways, basically. Yes, and so like, idea. In, in a way, my father married into my mother's gotcha. family. Gotcha, okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So you had a strong did she, did she have a lot of siblings, too? I okay. think, don't, don't, okay, okay, but nobody I, okay. hold me, hold it against me, but, uh, about twelve. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. But I might be I might be missing or adding one. One or two. Yeah. Okay. Your father's side, you really didn't have too much contact with. Them. Oh no, we did have. Oh, a, you did? We had good enough contact, but they were in Arkansas, or they were in. Um, they had all moved away, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of them were in California. A few of them were on the uh, East Coast, mm -hmm. and uh, we would try and go up most summers to uh, visit our uh, grandfather. In Arkansas. And, yeah, our okay. grandfather in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, mm -hmm. and he was uh, and also uh, the, one of the oldest sons that mm -hmm. they had there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's neat. So did, so did you ever travel outside of Arkansas and Texas when you were No. Sport? That was basically it. That was so it. I just, okay, but then, mm -hmm. so tell me, so then when you, so you come back from, from your time over here from one year, you go back to college, you finished? Oh, yes. Okay, so what did you finish? What did you finish? And what were you doing? What was your degree in? Uh, my degree when I started was I was thinking of math. Okay. Uh, because the sign up period for the art classes at UT Austin, um, those were very competitive. They, yeah, and I missed the sign off. Okay, okay. And so my trajectory as an art student was somewhat derailed. <laughs> But since I had gone to an arts and science academy in high school as well, I had thought about the math course, mm -hmm. and that seemed like a good idea okay. until I met one <laughs> professor. All right. Tell me what happened with that. Well, their name was Budweiser, and they liked kegs. <laughs> <laughs> As most people right, know, just, as right, most right. people know, uh, once you start college, you know, right, you know, the blinders come off, etc. And it's easy. The wide path to success <laughs> be, can become incredibly narrow very quick. Okay. And so let's just say that math and lots of kegs, even if you're counting them on a regular basis every weekend, don't really mix. Okay. All right. All right. All right. However, a saving grace. I had always taken Japanese. So how'd that work out, tell me. And so okay. when I had around the third year, sophomore year, I was called into the guidance counselor's office because they just call you in. Okay. <laughs> you know, right, right, they, right. Everyone's, they, they just call you in. It's like, <laughs> Mr. Thompson, we would like to see you at the right. guidance of the counselor's office. And I went in and, and they were like, mm, well, there have been some, let's just call them aberrations okay. that we've noticed. Right. And oh, wow. You've taken so much Japanese that all you need is one more course to graduate. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, you, you would basically have to change your declaration of your major, but yeah, you can just you can just you can graduate next semester if you want. 
And so this is after coming back from Japan okay. and yeah. the way that all that was calculated. And oh, I, was I see, because like, that counted too. That, that counted as well. And it, and it, it counted it, a lot, I it, it, it counted, it a, counted lot. a whole lot. For one year being over here, wow. Yes. And so that was <laughs> a saving, saving grace. grace. Wow. So then, so what you graduate, what degree did you graduate with? Japanese. Whoa! Uh, Japanese with a minor in mathematics, and so I'm looking at this, and I'm in Texas, and I'm like, "Okay, let's okay. do this. All right, go <laughs> let's on. go to let's go to Japan." And um, right after you graduated, more or less. Yes. All right. And so I managed to get into. I had heard about the uh, jet program mm -hmm. while I was over here. I had met a random individual who said they were on this program, and it was called the JET program. I'd never heard of it. I'd never known that it existed. Of course, people will find this, this and nowadays people will find it uh, kind of unbelievable, but there was no internet at that time. And so really, even for a lot of people to get into college in the 80s and 90s, if you didn't have a network or at least the one person who told you the right thing at the right time, your path could venture widely. It was still viewed um, as somewhat acceptable to just go straight into trade. And a lot of people still did, did that. Mm -hmm. And so going into higher education and then trying to figure out what you do after you graduate from higher education, for a lot of people that was still a black box. Mm -hmm. And I, I think some people in your audience will really understand this. Generationally, the type of uh, chances and opportunities that um, different communities, societies, etc., provides for you, mm -hmm. you don't know until after a, after the fact right. whether they were as wide as possible or whether they were narrowed for certain reasons. Mm -hmm. And and so um, having found out about the JET program, having graduated with a Japanese mm -hmm. degree, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, if those two things match, I'll go and do that. Okay. And uh, so I managed to come over here on the JET program and I came back to Chiba. So in Chiba Prefecture, same area? Uh, no. So okay. when I first came, the university is in Katsura, which is Katsura, very close yeah. to Onjuku, where the Olympics were this year right. for surfing. Right. And I came back to Chiba City proper. Okay. Uh, as very a jet. Close. Okay. Yeah. And so how long did you do that? How long um, did you do that? I thought that I would stay one or two years, maybe three years, because that's the maximum on the jet program, and uh, until I could learn something. Uh, when I came on the jet program, there were two tracks. One was the English teaching track, mm -hmm. and the other one was a coordinator track. The coordinator track would put you in the offices of municipalities or prefectural governments, okay. and so you would work in like the international relations mm -hmm. department, etc. Mm -hmm. And so that sounded like it would be a progression professionally, mm -hmm. and I thought that I would be able to learn something, and after three years of doing that, maybe I would leave. Okay, so what did you, you end up doing? What happened? I wound up learning that the bureaucracy is not really the place to learn a lot of practical business But that's skills. where you went? You actually went towards, you didn't do the English No, side. I went to the city hall. So I was yeah. in okay, the okay. city hall in uh, Chiba Prefecture. Right. And I was working in their international relations division. Okay. And it was... For a three-year period? For a three-year period. Okay. And it, professionally, it wasn't worth it. <laughs> right. That's the long story short. But the people that I met socially in Chiba City, gotcha. they, had nothing of, to, they had nothing to do with nothing work, to, to do, do with, with the work. Okay, the work. If I met somebody, if I well, actually, if somebody is thinking of the jet program program right now, I would say just make sure you vet your destination ahead of time. 
Okay. Because everyone's mileage varies. I was one of the few people who had uh, that level of not favorable experiences on the JET program. Okay. Um, but of course, there were numerous people, you know, nationwide. I mean, their intake is like say five thousand or so, uh, who have like exceptional experiences, and that helps. I mean, that's one of the reasons Japan has a very vibrant, you know, international community here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but in my case, I wound up except for the language and except for the social uh, connections that I was able to build uh, during that period, I didn't get that much that I could take away and say, well, I will use this for my next job. Okay, okay, yeah. gotcha. So you couldn't use that at all. So how did you use your connections on the outside? Those connections were basically more about mental health and well-being than they were about uh, situating myself for the next move. Okay. The, when I made, so after three years on the JET program and I did a reality check of where I was, so in your early 20s and trying to put yourself on some type of career path, mm -hmm. um, you have to think, well, you wind up thinking uh, quite deeply about different things. I had heard of people who wound up going into finance here in Tokyo, I'd heard of people uh, some people came from technical backgrounds. They wound up uh, going into technical things. But then I happened to stumble upon a few connections who were working in advertising. And advertising was not something that I knew about. Okay. And I wound up getting a position at a company that did advertising for a lot of uh, big names at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Kenwood, JVC, gotcha. and uh, that those type of electronic manufacturers, they were still heavily into print media. Mm -hmm. and, the, and they would sell the products throughout the entire world, so they needed language coordinators. Mm -hmm. And so it was a, a job which was somewhat similar in content to what I was doing in international relations in Chiba City, mm -hmm. um, but it was more in a practical kind of thing because it's multinational companies that are doing communications worldwide. Right. And that sounded, that sounded appealing. Okay, and that reminds me that when we did meet, you were still doing that. You're yes, still, doing something. still right. in advertising. I remember that, because that, mm. now it's ringing. I mean, I'm starting to remember the conversations we had and stuff before, because you had, you had you were working with another company, I believe, yes. at the time, mm -hmm. but you had your own team. That's right. Basically, and you were basically like coordinating the team and stuff, and you were doing a lot of the advertising. And I think you were doing most of the, well, the creative part of it. Well, the, so my background is actually project management. Okay. And so this was the interesting thing that I wound up discovering. Um, before project management was a thing in a separate category of work, Basically, every job has coordinators or assistants. It, it doesn't matter what the word is, but these are the people who connect all the dots, all the moving parts, and make sure that everything is moving in unison. Mm -hmm. After three, four years of doing this coordination, I discovered that there was another word for it, and if you use this word, all of a sudden you get paid more, and that word was project management. <laughs> So what are you? I'm a project, project manager. Project manager. <laughs> Coordinators? No, 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 no. What are you, project manager? Coordinators. That type of thing. So it's very, very close to the explanation that you were that That's you right. just mentioned. Yes. That is interesting. So when you did that, how did you? How did that make you feel? Did it feel really good? Like you said, all these years. I don't know how many years you did it as project manager. Mm. 
you know, and then you changed it to a coordinator, right? That's well, from a, coordinator to, to project, project manager, yes. right? From coordinator to project manager. So how many years did you do it as coordinator? Mm. And then when you said, just a matter of a word, it was almost by accident, I would say, okay, because you, the ind industries are also a very fluid. Mm -hmm. And I went from print media to digital media. And this was really interesting because uh, print media, a lot can go wrong in terms of, especially the old style print media. Mm -hmm. If you remember, everything mm -hmm. was photographed and then from the photographic prints you made the plates right. and then you printed. Right. And so at any part of that mechanical stage, things if things went wrong, it's an analog process, you had to do it all over, all over again. Yeah. Um, and then things went digital. The interesting thing about digital is the amount of moving parts multiplied. Not exponentially, but pretty close. And so if you're working on websites and these websites have to start dealing with legacy systems. Mm -hmm. And so remember that before the internet, well, there was digital media, but a lot of that was in-house. Mm -hmm. And those were on quote unquote legacy systems. What the digital media, the world that we live in right now is we're dealing with something called front-end systems. Mm -hmm. And so these, the ability to deal with front-end systems, make a, a nice Instagram post, put it up on what is basically your personal website right, on right, their right. platform. You're dealing with front-end, middleware, mm -hmm. and back-end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all of these things have to work together because they're passing information. Somebody has to be aware of the processes that go on, um, at, if not the whole system, at least they're part of it, from the front end to the middle part. Right, right. How is data being passed together? Somebody has to coordinate that, somebody has to manage that, and so when I say that the industries were changing, once I moved into digital, there were not a lot of people who could manage these steps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it's not necessary that you have a very analytical mind, but you have to have a very imaginative mind. Mm -hmm. And because some of these things are intuitive. And so the background that I had from coordinating all of these different processes of, the, of uh, print material, it transferred very well to managing digital processes. And I moved basically from coordinating and accounts to say accounts and project management. And 20 years later, now I, still have my own agency, mm -hmm. and I'm a marketing consultant. Well, what does that mean that I do? Mm -hmm. It means that I do a lot of the strategy and the planning that goes on before you decide what to do with media. Gotcha. In advertising, and not just media, but also people. Because mm -hmm. another epiphany that I had over the years, after doing a lot of complex projects, it dawned on me that the work is never the hardest part. Mm -hmm. What is the hardest part? The people doing the work. There you go. <laughs> so you're really in the people business. Yeah, it, once, you, once you discover you're in the people business, and, and so project management, well, you can manage these processes, but you need, there are people behind these processes. And every single bit of it. Oh, uh, no, so I've been in business basically as a sole proprietor for the past 20 years or so. Okay. And so I worked in a uh, print, media company mm -hmm. and from that I transferred to a digital media company mm -hmm. and this was around uh, 1999, uh, 2000 or so and this was the birth of the internet here in Japan mm -hmm. and things were hot, moving fast 
And so at our small boutique uh, digital agency, uh, you I mean you started your own? No, I was with, I was hired. Okay. I was hired basically as a general project manager to help the company as it grew okay. extremely fast. Okay. And so that's where all of the coordination skills uh, really um, came to light and I was really, to really able to leverage those for quite a while. But at the company itself, this being the early internet, everybody was thinking of one thing, make the exit. Mm -hmm. If you can make the exit and sell, then you will do exceedingly well. Mm -hmm. And we had a good run, two years, and I'm sure that some people can relate to this if they've been in the business uh, for a long time or even more recently. We missed our exit. Okay. As so many other people did. <laughs> As so many other people did. Right. And so then the economy was changing because there were different things that happened at that time. Um, basically, 911. Mm -hmm. was one of the things um, that were, or rather it was one of the last things in a cascade of events. The internet, the initial internet bubble in the state, America was probably five years ahead of Japan. Mm -hmm. And so if they started in say 96, 97 with their internet boom, Japan started um, a few years later and it was a little bit shorter. And so from 1998 to 19, uh, 1998 as a start, and then until 2001, uh, more or less as an ending, we were doing very well at the digital uh, marketing boutique that I was at, um, at the beginning. And so the ramp up was very good, and interest from other parties was also very good. But things started to sputter around 2000. And there were larger organizations which were having them. They came into the market strong. They had to leave. Uh, we were picking up some of their clients, so it was actually pretty good. We were, in, in a sense, the last man standing. And this is a, going to be a repeated phrase, mm -hmm. I'm sure, during our, our discussion. And we were the last man standing until we weren't. And how did that happen? Well, we had offers on the table. Mm -hmm. And one simple word kind of explains what happens with what happened with the exit. Timing okay. and greed. And so while waiting for even better offers to show up, um, and as unbeknownst to us, the wave that was happening with the collapse of the internet bubble, the final wave was approaching Japan. Before taking the exit that was on the table, 911 happened. Once 911 happened, and we had clients that were showing up from the States to look at budgets to decide what they would take back from Japan to the States. That usually, that doesn't happen. It, the only other time that's happened has basically been the Lehman shock era. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's when the people in the agency, the senior management, I was one of, say, the five uh, founding members of the agency. And we understood that, okay, well, this is it. We are out. <laughs> and I spent about six months or a year trying to figure out what to do next. Okay. And so here in Japan, uh, in one of the most expensive cities in the world, the rent is not cheap, and trying to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized that the coordination slash project management skill set that I had was still in much demand. There were quite a few multinational agencies here. A lot of them are gone, they don't exist anymore. Right, um, sure. Not even the name would mm -hmm, be recognized. Mm -hmm. And so I was winding up working with them as a outsourced project manager to help keep their teams together while they were chasing through all of the requests from their clients. Because digital is a very 
unforgiving type of industry when it changes. There are periods of stability, and right now for most people, say Facebook, Instagram, we're in a stable period because mm -hmm. everyone understands that that's what you should do. Mm -hmm. Well, what about TikTok? What would you have to do or how would you have to change if that becomes the mainstay the way that Facebook and Instagram that's are right. now? Right. And so that's those um, events like that, even another thing that's much more passive, line. When did you right. finally decide to sign up for Line yeah, in the past? It took a while. And so, and but nowadays, Line is one of the ways that a it's lot like of people in your networks, um, that's how they prefer to communicate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not even email anymore. That's right. <laughs> and so things like that. And so digital, uh, the digital industry, digital marketing, digital media, it's very interesting, but it's very unforgiving when it changes. Mm -hmm. That would be the main one. Do you see a change coming up now? Do you see anything coming? I am. TikTok is one of the biggest changes in the way that I see how a younger demographic is consuming media. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that drives a lot of what I do as a marketing consultant, because digital is also a large part of my background, is trying to understand where the emerging trends are coming from. Mm -hmm. These trends are always driven by media consumption. So what do people look at? What do they use? In the same way that you said, a lot of the, uh, you, you deal with a lot of, say, younger children, mm -hmm. you know, with the different programs. Mm -hmm. Well, they're consuming this media, and so they're driving it. Right. And they, and uh, your children are no longer as small as they used That's to be, right. but they're still closer to the edge of that. Yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, you, you should be on TikTok. This mm -hmm. is what it is. And you might have looked at a couple of things, and you would go, okay, it's kind of interesting, but is it that interesting? Right. Because it's not meant for our generation to right, consume. Right, generation, because we take a longer time to consume. Yes. And they've been taught to take a shorter time. Mm -hmm. So where do you see it going? What's going to happen? That is a very, very good question. And so every four or five years, I find myself having to uh, rethink where I should be in the market, mm -hmm. um, what I should be focusing on. And it's pretty hectic if you just remain in the technology side of it. And so the thing that I've been focusing on for the past uh, 10 years or so has mainly been the people element. Because that element is more consistent. It is consistent and the needs that they that people in those areas, or rather the people-based needs, um, it's a very deep area. It's a very deep area. And so I've been teaching in uh, at Temple University in their continuing education program okay. since basically the mid-2000s. What do you teach? And so I teach a variety of classes. I, I teach advertising promotional strategies. I think corporate communications. Right now, this semester, we have uh, brand, brands and branding, mm -hmm. also marketing principles, and but there are also uh, other types of ad hoc type of programs. One of those is also a content marketing boot camp. The, and so most of the classes at Temple University that I've taught, I've made the curriculums from scratch. Um, I've decided how they should be delivered. And it's always engaging because there is always a different um, body of students that enrolls each semester. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that keeps me engaged. And I'm it also forces me 
yes. to stay uh, on top of what is happening in my industry. And so this is also why part of my business, while I do, I am an agency and I do a lot of digital campaigns or advertising campaigns, I also do a lot of professional development. And so the teaching that I do at Temple University is very much related to that mm -hmm. and it helps support the type of professional development that I also do uh, at companies with individuals, also executive leadership uh, mm -hmm. programs that I run as well. Oh. This is also something that is um, very important for people that coach is understanding the self-interest of the people that you are talking to. And self-interest is not necessarily a logical thing. Yeah. How do you go about finding that? Well, some of the things are incredibly, incredibly easy to overlook. Okay. And the one of the, it's not always possible, but one of the easiest ways to find out what somebody's self-interest about one thing is, is to take them out of that context and talk about it. And this is where a lot of companies uh, will sometimes fail when they're trying to measure how their employees are feeling, what they're really thinking. All things said, um, these evaluations or these sessions, for the most part, they're taking place at the company and within an existing power structure. And this existing power structure, that is the medium, the ambient, it, it affects the ambience of everything. However, when you take people out of that context and put them in a neutral situation, then it becomes very easy to understand the type of conversations that they are having inside with themselves. So one of the things that I do as a coach is when I am invited into companies, I come in as a neutral person. And being a neutral person, it allows me to uh, hear different things impartially. And then also to have very direct conversations with people, whether it's the management or the staff, about what they think is going on as opposed to what is objectionably going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I was able to see how instruction, uh, not direction, but instruction can help people solve their own problems. Mm -hmm quicker than you directing them right, to do it. Right, right, right. Because the prob one of the issues with direction for simple uh, mission critical things where yes, the direction is necessary, it must be done within 24 hours or the whole thing collapses. Yes, you have to direct. But if a project is lasting a week, three months, a year, it is better to instruct people on all the options that they have uh, that are viable in how to gain successful completion at each stage than to try and direct all of that because that is the path that leads to micromanagement. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever been in a situation, if you've ever been micromanaged or if you ever tried micromanaging, you understand that there is a limit to what you will do mm -hmm. and that you will start to have diminishing returns. And, and so that, having faced that window many different times, um, and the diminishing returns, it's basically become became my, my mantra that I should focus on the people. In terms of, say, more recently, I've now basically um, set up a program properly to do this as a standalone service uh, line with my company. 
And so I have a coaching service line, but I also have a professional academy. Um, and this online academy is really for marketing pro professionals worldwide. But of course, since I'm in Japan and APAC, my real focus is Japan and APAC. But so that people can learn marketing and how through understanding strategy, um, understanding branding, understanding organizational development, how at whatever level that they are, they can pull these things together to make their team, their staff work better, their teams work better, but to make their offices better places to work at. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the friction that, again, people in offices, a lot of the friction that you get in offices when things are not going as well as they could be, well, again, it's the people. Right. How do, would people get access to your program? Um, I have a website. Everything okay. is on my website. And okay. so if they go to conceptdesign.io, mm -hmm. um, that they will be able to find the different uh, types of things that I do as an agency. Mm -hmm. Also the things that I do uh, with coaching, the coaching programs I have. Okay. And then also there's a section for the, um, for the academy mm -hmm. that I run, the Concept Design Academy. Fantastic, mm -hmm. fantastic. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Well, I want to say one thing, and I actually had this discussion uh, several years ago, but um, people, when they come to Japan, they will always uh, have the question, well, what, what, what's necessary to make it in Japan? And I think the same thing is necessary in any place uh, throughout the world. You have to be ready to ask for something, but you need to know how to ask. And it's really very simple. Keep it as simple as possible, but if there is one thing that you are interested in, ask for it. And you would be amazed at the possibilities that open up. Now, it doesn't mean that you go for the biggest ask first, but on your process to get to the biggest ask, you probably need to cover several different steps. Think through that and start asking. And that is one of the things that will open up the most doors for you. And that is some really good advice. I'm saying that from experience. <laughs> because that was one of the things I had to really learn. Mm -hmm. To not be afraid to ask. Yes. And thank you so much. No, thank you very much. I really it's appreciate real being pleasure. able to come here today. Thank you so, so much. Mm -hmm. For all of you watching, remember to press like, subscribe, and never forget, it's all unknown. Continue to reach for the stars, and you're too blessed to be stressed.